I hope you picked up a, a copy of the sermon notes, and we really are uh, coming down the home stretch of our study of the book of Philippians, although it has taken me uh, several weeks uh, to work through uh, this particular message, which is actually the next to the last message uh, that I'll be uh, sharing with you from the book of Philippians. So uh, we may or may not be able to finish this morning this particular message. If not, we'll con definitely conclude it. Uh, next week when we have our Lord's Supper service, but we may make it through this week. If you would turn to the back, uh, I'm not going to take uh, any time to really review this morning, but uh, the, the back of your notes, that's the heart of the truth in this section in Philippians 4, uh, verses uh, 10 through 13, uh, where Paul shares the secret uh, to contentment. And of course, uh, we're defining contentment as uh, coming to a place where you know the sufficiency of Christ in your life in any and every circumstance, uh, where you come to that place and you find rest, peace in the storm, uh, contentment, uh, where you come to that point in life and you realize Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient and uh, His grace alone. Now. We've looked at the first point, so all of this is review. Points two and three, that will be the new material, but I do want to begin with a brief review of that first point, and that is the, uh, the first secret to contentment is viewing my needs as opportunities to look to God's providence. And, uh, and Aubrey, you can just go right over the, uh, the, the verses there, but look at that next statement in your notes uh, sort of a little definition of uh, God's providence. Providence speaks of the provision of God as He takes the all things of life and orchestrates them uh, to accomplish His purpose in the life of His child. Again, providence speaks of the provision of God as He takes the all things of life and orchestrates them to accomplish His purpose in the life of His child. God's providence, as we saw the last couple of weeks, is God foreseeing every need, every decision, every adversity, every challenge, every attack of the devil, every failure you will experience, and then providing beforehand. God's providence has strategically placed along that course that he's laid out for your life, he's placed the provision that you will need just at the right time to be discovered and utilized by you uh, just as you need it. Now, of course, we must discover and appropriate that provision uh, through prayers. We put our trust in God, and tragically, we can miss the provision uh, through worry uh, fear and unbelief. Uh, you see in your notes uh, the examples of God's providence that we looked at last Sunday. Uh, we looked at the lives of Paul, Joseph, Ruth, Esther, and Jesus. And from these examples, last week we made uh, three observations about God's providence. Now, these are not in your sermon notes, but very important observations to notice. First, from the believer's perspective, God's providence is a mystery. Uh, there will be many times in life when we cannot 
trace God's hand. And we must trust God's heart. Like any good mystery, we will never fully understand the plot. We'll never really understand the reason why so many things happen to us, especially the painful experiences in life, until the story is finished. Therefore, faith is required on our part so that we do not give up on God too quick, so that we persevere to the end of the story. And when we allow God to finish the story, the end is always a good one. Amen? Always a good one. We mentioned last week, James chapter 5, which says when we look at the outcome of the Lord's dealings with Job, we come to the conclusion, quote, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This is why Romans 10:11 reads, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Not that we won't have struggles. I mean, Job had his struggles. He suffered. And he became often very perplexed, questioned God, railed against God. But at the same time as he placed his faith in God, as he continued to look at God, remember he made that great statement, though he slay me, I will what? I will trust in him. That was faith in the midst of the perplexity when he couldn't understand, when, when God's providence was just a total mystery to Job. But in the end, Job was not disappointed. And he came to the conclusion, yes, God is compassionate. He is merciful. The second thing that we uh, observed about God's providence is that it does not promise everything you want. But it does guarantee everything you will need to accomplish God's plan for your life. Not your plan, not your dreams, but God's plan for your life. God will never call you to be or to do anything where He does not provide everything you will need. Therefore, hope, confidence in God's provision is what sustains us as we walk through that mystery of God's providence. What does the first verse of Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I shall not lack any good thing. The shepherd will provide. The shepherd will protect. The shepherd will lead. I am indestructible until I accomplish God's plan and work for my life. The third observation is although God's plan will be very uh, unique, very different for each and every believer, there is a common denominator. And that common denominator is God's desire to build Christ's character in your life, and don't miss this second part, to build Christ's character in your life for the benefit of others. First uh, Timothy 1.5 reads, the ultimate aim, I like this verse, the ultimate aim is to produce the love which springs from a pure heart and a good conscience and a genuine faith. So when you put all of this together, we discover that the ultimate goal of God's providence is to teach you faith, hope, and love. And in doing so, to put God on display before others so that God is lifted up, so God is exalted, so that God is magnified. As we stated, God wants to use you as His telescope, as His microscope. So many see Christ only at a distance, as some remote historical figure. God wants to use your life to bring Him up close and personal before others. 
through the testimony of your life, that they see the authenticity of Christ lived in and through you. There are many others that see Christ as so very small, very insignificant. He wants to use you as his microscope to magnify his greatness, to exalt him in the eyes of others. And God will use your adversities to do that as you go through trial and as God's power is perfected in your weakness to demonstrate the greatness and the strength and the power of Almighty God. Now this brings us to our second, second secret to learning contentment. And look there in your notes. Receiving trials, receiving adversity, suffering as opportunities to learn Christ's character. I must not only view my needs as opportunities to look to God's providence, but I also need to receive my trials, my adversities, my suffering as opportunities to learn Christ's character. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 4. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now look at the next statement in your notes. Notice, contentment is not acquired at salvation, but only learned through time and trial. To learn contentment in any and every circumstance, God has to place us in a variety of situations, both good and bad. It's the only place to learn, have the opportunity to learn contentment. That's why James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter, you know what the next word is? Various trials. That word in the Greek text literally means uh, multicolored, of all shapes and sizes. So because God is committed to teaching you contentment, to get to the place where you can find rest and peace in Jesus, that He alone is enough for you, God will allow you, not because He hates you, not because He's mad at you, but because He loves you and He wants to accomplish His goal. He will allow you to experience a variety of situations, good and bad, to provide that opportunity. Now, I believe it would be good right here to remind ourselves of the different ways God uses adversity in our lives. Uh, so often... Because we do not understand how God uses adversity when it comes to our lives as believers. We conclude that either God's mad at us or God has deserted us. When in reality, all he's trying to do is to teach us his ways. And especially contentment in Christ. So let me mention six different ways that God uses adversity. Now, these are not in your sermon notes. I couldn't fit them on the page. So... Uh, I would encourage you to write these six down, uh, maybe at the top, the bottom of the uh, page, uh, along with some of the references. I'm going to move through this uh, rather quickly, but it's important for us to see. One of the ways that God uses adversity, and, and this is the one we probably most often think about, but it's just one of the six that I'm going to mention, is yes, as a rod of discipline, as a rod of discipline to correct his child when we sin or we drift from God's plan in our lives. Remember, God's provision is only going to be in his plan. God's empowerment is only going to be in his plan. So God 
when we drift, when we get outside His authority, we stop following His plan, He wants to get us back into that plan. And there can always be a new beginning with God through His mercy. When we turn to Him in confession, to forsake our sin, and to uh, return to Him as our first love, uh, to follow Him. Uh, Great, great verses. Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 31 through 33. God says, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness. Notice, what motivates God to discipline His child? Love. Again, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have been caught by God's love from which there is no escape. Nothing can ever change God's disposition of love towards one of His children. Just like one of my children, they may drift, they may disobey, they may rebel, whatever, but nothing's going to alter my love for them. And it's the same way with God. He loves us with a love that will never let us go, a love that will never fail us. And His discipline is even an act of love because He knows what is best for us to get us back into that plan where we're going to know His provision and His empowerment because only there is going to be found true joy and contentment in Jesus. And this is why Hebrews 12 tells us not to become disappointed. Don't lose heart when you experience God's discipline. Verse 6 of Hebrews 12 says, For those whom the Lord loves, He what? He disciplines. And He scourges every son that He receives. And then in verses 10 and 11, listen, God's discipline is always good for us so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. I mean, who enjoys a spanking? No one. Yes, it is painful. Yes, it is sorrowful. Yet, he goes on, to those trained by it, afterwards, afterwards it yields the peaceful, contentment, contented fruit of what? Righteousness. So again, yes, it's painful. And yes, it can be perplexing, but as we stay with God, putting our faith in God, the end result is what? Peace. Righteousness. So that is one of the ways that God uses adversity, is a rod of discipline. A second way that God uses discipline is, I'll just say, as a, uh, to make it easy to get on, write down in your notes, as a pride buster. To just demolish our pride. Uh, to, to break us of self-centeredness. So a pride buster. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 reads, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Sound familiar? Remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5? Do nothing what from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. You're to regard what? Others more important than yourself. Remember? God's goal in every believer is what? To build Christ's character for the benefit of others. Don't look to your own interest, but to the interest of others, to the welfare of others. And let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Listen very carefully. Paul wrote this. And he said, so to keep me from becoming proud, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Notice, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, not because he was proud, but to keep him from becoming prideful. Now listen, God knows your vulnerabilities. And so often God will do some preemptive strikes or work in our lives, dealing with things like pride and selfishness and anger and impatience, irritability, whatever it might be, because again, He knows our vulnerability. He knows our every character flaw and deficiency and struggle. And this is what Paul is saying here. Paul said, I, I wasn't guilty of pride yet, but God knew my vulnerability. So to keep me from becoming prideful, He gave me this thorn in the flesh to cause me to be drawn near to Him, to have to lean on Him, to just see how truly dependent I am upon Him. And so often God uses adversity in that way because He knows our vulnerabilities. He'll bring adversity to cause us to be broken, to have to depend upon Him in a deeper fashion. The third way that God uses adversity, just put down pruning shears. Pruning shears. John 15, verse 2. And every branch that bears fruit, he what? Prunes it. And why does he prune it? That it might bear what? More fruit. So when God prunes you, it's not for anything that you're doing bad. It's for everything you're doing good. God's saying, I'm, I'm so thankful that you're knowing Christ, my life, flow into your branch. That Christ, my life is being reproduced in and through you for the nourishment of others. And I want more of that fruit. I want you to live more for the benefit of others and for the glory of my kingdom. So I'm going to prune you. Now listen very carefully. Do you know that if a grapevine is left to itself, if it's just left to itself, it will always prefer new growth over more fruit, which weakens the ability to produce fruit. And we do the same thing. In other words, what God is saying here, we have a tendency to get involved in so many things. And many things which in and of themselves are okay, good things, but they rob us of the best. They rob us of engaging and investing in those things, which has what? Eternal significance. So much of our life is invested in just temporal satisfaction instead of internal significance. And so God says, because I love you, because I know you have a tendency to get involved in so many things to where you get distracted from what's the most important things in life, I'm lovingly going to prune you. And pruning is painful. And let me give you a little clue. If you're knowing pain in your life, and you've examined yourself, and you're confident God is not using this as a rod of discipline, then He's probably pruning you. And you need to look and say, where is the point of the pain? Because that where's God's point. It may be a relationship God's trying to prune you off. It may be a job that he knows is not best for you, and he wants to open another door, some other area. 
It could, it could be an interest. It could, it could be a million different things. But God uses Versius pruning shears uh, to take us to the best. The fourth way that God uses adversity, and this is the primary uh, way, is as a refiner's fire. As a refiner's fire. This gets back to this primary point of building Christ's character in us for the benefit of others. Uh, let me just share with you several verses along these lines. First uh, Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. This means tremendous joy for you, even though at present you may be temporarily harassed or distressed by all kinds of trials. This is no accident. It happens to prove your faith. In other words, to strengthen that faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold, and gold must be purified by fire. Job 23.10, he says, but he knows the way I take. If, if you see the greater context here, uh, Job is struggling with the mystery of God's providence. He just literally can't figure out what's going on and why God is allowing all this suffering in his life. And Job makes a statement, when I go forward, I can't see God. And when I look back, I can't find him. I look to my left, I can't see God. He's absolutely lost in the darkness with the perplexity and the pain of his trial. But then, this is the statement he makes right behind that. But he says, but he knows the way I take. I may be perplexed, I may be in the dark, but he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. We can rejoice too. Notice this emphasis on joy, even in the midst of trial. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Now, why would you rejoice when you run headlong into problems and trials? For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And it's that strength of character that enables us to continue to persevere to get to what? The end of the story. Where it's good. Well, we don't close the book up too quick on God and give up on Him because we don't understand. And then, of course, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. In other words, he's saying basically throw a party. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Also, you're seeing here there's a process. Again, you don't acquire contentment and salvation. It's a process that you have to go through, trials and tribulations, to have the opportunity to learn contentment as you put your trust in Him. And then you ask, well, what is God trying to do in my life? What's the character He's trying to build into my life? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. Here it is. You're saying, what is God's ultimate goal in your life? Is to teach you love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And how does God do that? If He wants to teach you love, He's going to bring someone into your life that's very difficult to love. If He wants to teach you joy, He's going to bring sorrow into your life, pain into your life. 
So that you can learn that joy is not in circumstances, but in Jesus. And it pushes you to that relationship. How is he going to teach you peace? He's going to raise up a storm to give you an opportunity to turn to him in the midst of the storm and to find the calm that only he can bring. Look at the fifth way. Well, well, not in your notes, but the fifth way God uses uh, adversity is as a faith builder. Just put faith builder. Faith builder. This has always been one of my favorite uh, passages in all the Bible. Um, my favorite book in all the Bible probably is 2 Corinthians because of, uh, it's like an autobiography of Paul. There's no other book where he's so transparent about his own uh, struggles and difficulties. And he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, we were crushed, overwhelmed. Beyond our ability to endure it. And we thought we would never live through it. This is the Apostle Paul. Right in the middle of God's will. But at this point, it's a mystery, God's providence. And he's in a trial and adverse like he's never experienced before. And he says, I'm crushed. I'm overwhelmed. Beyond my ability to endure it. We thought we'd never live through it. In fact, he says, we expected to die. We thought it was over. We thought the book was about to be closed. But as a result, listen, here's why God allowed him to go through that. But as a result, here's what God was doing. We stopped relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. Paul said, God let me go through this and I would learn nothing really is impossible with God. You're never beyond hope. God can do anything. And then the sixth, let me just mention the final way. There are other ways, but the sixth way I'll mention this morning. How God, as an open door... Open door to minister to others. An open door to minister to others. You need to realize, hear me now, and I've said this before from this pulpit, but not in a while. Every pain you experience in life, every single pain you experience, without exception, God's goal in that is not only to give you His grace to bring you through it, but then to minister to others who are going through similar trials and adversity and pain. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul wrote, He, God, listen now, comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. Building Christ's character in me for the benefit of others. It's not about me. It's about God and it's about others. Because that is the life of Christ, a life focused on serving. He says, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. I love this statement by Charles Stanley. He says, it is a very poor comforter who is never needed comforting. So some of you have lost loved ones and you're hurting and you're grieving. God wants to bring you to a place where you know His grace. 
to support you, to encourage you in the midst of the grief. Not that you're going to be able to escape the grief, but in the grief you'll know his presence. You'll know his sustaining power. You'll be able to sing like Luther Bridges. He keeps me singing, even after losing his wife and three sons. But he does that so that then you take that next step of then I reach out to others that are experiencing that same difficulty, that same adversity, and I just simply share with them the grace. Yeah, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Many of you remember the birds, Neil and Kelly, who lost their son. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. I spent that whole day with them. I was there when Kelly received the news from her husband, and it was, it was, I, I just, it was just traumatic. And I remember being there in their home that whole day, and people from the church family just began flooding in, you know, just bringing food, trying, trying to minister. And then I'll never forget, late afternoon, walked Harry and Pat Franklin. Of course, Harry went home to be with the Lord. Pat's still here in the church. And you remember, they lost a teenage child. And I'll never forget when they walked in that house and Neil and Kelly's eyes met Harry and Pat's eyes. Nothing had to be said. Nothing had to be said. And then they just embraced one another. I'm telling you folks, more took place in those two or three seconds, when their eyes met him with that embrace, than the rest of us had done all day. Because Pat and Harry understood. They had been there. They had known that agony. But they had experienced God's grace. And they could impart it to them. So there's an invaluable lesson here. Before we, well, I'll have to stop there and I'll finish this up next week, that third point. But here's the invaluable lesson. Let me just close with it. Give me your invited attention as we close. And here it is. If there's one thing that we see here, we're not to focus, and this has been one of the reoccurring themes throughout the book of Philippians. I hope you haven't missed it. It's not for us to focus on outcomes. That's what? That's God's business. God's the one that determines the plot. God determines the end of the story. See, we want to come in and we want to tell God how this story should end. Or how this circumstance should be resolved. Or this adversity or this difficulty. That is not our business. That's the job of a sovereign God who loves you. And knows what is best for you. So he just wants me, what? Through it all, to keep my eyes on him and learn the character lessons he has for me for the benefit of others. Again, I go back to, Paul stated it so well in Philippians chapter 1. Here's a man that's been in prison for four years. And, and you want a little glimpse into this man's heart. And you say, well, how is Paul praying? What, what, what is he expecting God to do? What is he hoping God will do for him at this time? I mean, how is he praying? And then this is what he says. He says, here it is. This is my earnest hope and expectation right here in this prison. That I will not be put to shame in anything. But that Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. See, this is a man, he's given God the outcome. He's letting God unfold the plot. He's letting God determine the finish of the story. And he's just saying, I'm just going to keep my eyes on him. And my only simple goal is to love him, to know him, and make him known to others. To be that telescope and microscope. Amen? Amen. So as we enter a time of invitation, I trust God has spoken to the life of every believer. You know, we don't want to be, we don't want to make the same mistake. And I often pray this for my own life. The children of Israel. In the Psalms it says, the the children of Israel saw the works of God, but they never understood His ways. They saw His works, but they never came to understand His heart for them. And as a result, they fell into unbelief and worry and anxiety. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they never had the outcome that God initially intended them to have. Because this is not automatic. God's not going to override your will. We have to cooperate with Him in this process. As an expression of our love. As an expression of our trust. Our hope in Him. Our love for Him. So we need to ask God, God, don't let me fall into that category. Don't let me be one who just constantly sees your works, constantly, you, you, I see you bail me out, but I never learn the lesson. The next time, it's the same worry. It's the same anxiety. It's the same fear. God, take me into your heart to teach me contentment, to teach me rest as I place my confidence and my faith in you. So you respond to God giving him the freedom to arrange your life in the way that he deems best, and you just say, okay, God, from this, it's hands off. Okay, I'm not, it's, it, that's yours. My job is just to look to you, to know you, follow you, and make you known to others. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, oh, I would plead with you, come to Jesus today. Again, I think back September 20th, 1970, like I said, I came to Christ out of a terrible life of rebellion and sin, Um, God brought me into contact with a group of believers. I initially mocked them, ridiculed them, scorned them. But the longer I was around them, I saw the authenticity of their Christianity. I saw Jesus in them. I saw the fruit of their Christianity. And then I got to the place where I I wanted what they had. And I couldn't figure it out. I saw the fruit, but I didn't realize it was the vine Jesus in them producing that fruit. And then September 20th, 1970, the most blessed words I'd ever heard He that hath the Son hath life. But he that hath not the Son hath not life. And it was so clear. They have what they have because they have Jesus. I don't because this is what I've done my whole life. Because I knew the gospel, I knew the truth, but I had turned from it. And that night I went into my room, bowed my knee on the bed in total brokenness and surrender, and I placed my faith, my trust in Jesus as I surrendered to him. And I would incur, and I'll never regret that decision. Now, I've had a lot of ups and downs. I've had many failures, but he's been faithful to me. He's never not been faithful. And he'll be faithful to you. And you'll have the great joy of discovering his plan and his wonderful providence in your life. So please stand as the invitation extended. I'll remain standing here. Anyone has a decision they'd like to share, unite with the church, public profession of faith.